Shabbat Shalom, everybody. So I had a memory this week. I've been, uh, I've been a rabbi in Toronto. Well, for as long as I've been a rabbi, I've been a rabbi in Toronto. And early on in my rabbinic career, um, there was a lot of work, interfaith work, particularly with Christians. So Catholics, Christians of all denominations. Today, interestingly enough, it's a discussion for an entirely different time. But today, the, uh, the interfaith work is completely different. Um, I almost do no programming or work with Christian communities anymore. It's all with the Islamic communities. And there's some distinct differences between when you sit down an interfaith program involving Muslims as opposed to an interfaith program involving Christians. So I remember about 26, 25 years ago, um, down at the uh, Roman Catholic Archdiocese Center of Toronto. It's on uh, Young Street, just north of Summer Hill. And uh, there's religious leaders of all denominations sitting around the table, a rabbi or two, not many. And as they open up the afternoon program, they go around the table and they ask all the religious leaders to state their names, the parish or congregations that they're from, and in two to five sentences when they got the call. So they're going around, going around the table, and everyone's telling you about the moment that they got the call. And when it got to me, I felt like that scene in Woody Allen's Love and Death with Boris Grushenko stands up and says, if I could just have a miracle, one miracle, he says, a burning bush, the parting of the sea, my Uncle Sasha paying the dinner check, some miracle to know that God existed. I said, I said to myself, I'm still waiting for the call. <laughs> the notion, of course, of revelation, of something occurring in your life that all of a sudden, in a snap, takes you from here to there, is a distinctive Christian idea. It's also a very Western idea. As I said to you before, you sit around an interfaith leader table involving Jews and Muslims, and you would never have that conversation. But the Christian idea of revelation, of something occurring in your life and then radically changing it forever is deeply embedded in the context and body and language and symbols of our culture. Think about it for a moment. The movies we watch, the songs we listen to, they all involve a moment of euphoria that forever changes your life. It's interesting to note, of course, that the very foundational stories of Christian theology involving uh, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who on his way to Damascus has a vision from God and erratically changes his life. Constantine the Great, who converts Rome into the Holy Roman Empire, forever changing the face of Christianity and the religious world. What does he do? He's, on the, he's at the gates of Rome, across the Tiber River, about to conquer Rome. And he looks up in the sky and he sees a cross. At that moment, he promised himself that he would not only himself convert to Christianity, his mother, of course, was St. Helene. Not only would he convert to Christianity, but that the entire church, that the entire official language of the empire would be Christianity. He founded the Council of Nicaea in the third century, also forever changing Christianity, moving their Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. Radically changed the face of Christianity. 
But this week, as I looked at the Torah portion, I realized what I wanted to share with you in this morning, in the few short moments that we have, and this is a big idea, but in the few short moments we have, I wanted to share with you what I think is a distinctly Jewish idea about how God is revealed in life. Now, in order for us to get to this big idea, you're going to have to do a little classwork. And the classwork that I'm going to ask you to do, if you have on hand, is the large blue chumash that is directly in front of you. We're going to jump from two pages. That's all this is, is two pages. The first page I'm going to ask you to turn to is on page 40. It's the very end of the story of Noah. And for those of you who are familiar, at the very end of the story of Noah, we have a long significant story of genealogy leading all the way from Noah, arriving and bringing us to the next significant chapter that the Torah, the Bible is going to share with us. That is the story of Avram. Now listen to this really carefully. On page 40, and we're looking at verse 29. And Avram took along with Nahor wives. And then we're told of later on, on verse 31. Vayikach Terach at Avram, and Terach, Avram's father, took him and Lot, Ben Haran, or Ben Benovet, Sarai Kalato, and he takes his entire family. And what do they do in verse 31? Vayetsu itam meur kazdim, lechet artsak na'am. They left the city of Ur Kazdim to go to the land of Canaan. And they stopped in a place called Haran. Of course, in the next Torah portion, we read that God calls to Moses those famous words, Lech Lecha, leave your home. Get out of Ur Kazdim. Leave Mesopotamia. Go to the land that I promised you. And what's the problem with that? He already left. His father had picked up and taken him and the entire family leaving Or Kazdim, making their way there already. There was no moment, no firecracker, no revelation, no call in Avram's life where he was going to Sobeys one morning or he was making toast and he sees a message on a piece of bread and he picks up and he goes. He was already on the way. Here's the next page. It's from this week's Torah portion. On page 106, we read also the foundational story of Yaakov, Jacob. Jacob, we know, is one of a twin. Jacob, we know, has a conflicting, difficult relationship with his brother, with his mother, with his father. Jacob, we know, is connived by his mother to steal play a trick on his elder brother Esau to take the blessing of the firstborn from him. We know what that nets out for him in his life, that it tears the family apart. Jacob, under those circumstances, needs to leave his home. He needs to escape to save his life. And his mother tells him, where you need to go is where I am from. You need to go and escape to my family. So he heads off also again, going back to the old country, and she tells him that you should go to my brother's home. And Jacob leaves. And on the night that he leaves and departs his home running for his life, he falls asleep in a place alongside the road. 
It's a difficult, frightful moment. He's alone. It's dark. Traveling in the ancient world wasn't like traveling today. You were susceptible to all kinds of dangers, both unsuspecting and suspecting, natural and man-made, violence and nature taking its toll on you. And this is what we read about Jacob. Jacob, we are told in verse, on page 106, he goes down to sleep, and in verse 12 we hear, that Jacob falls asleep and he dreams of a ladder going from earth to heaven, that there are angels coming down and going back up, and that at the end he sees in this a promise that everything will be fine, that he should continue on his journey, and that he is assured, as he says to God, he says, I will make you my God if you protect me, and this is what I will do for you in return. This is the famous story of Jacob's ladder. It's interesting to note that at the very beginning of the story, Jacob is told to leave his home. And where is he told to go? He is told to go to his uncle's home. His mother tells him, you will find safety with my brother. After Jacob has this dream, does anything in his life change? No. After Jacob has this remarkable dream, this revelation from God of this ladder connecting earth to heaven, of angels that will accompany and protect him wherever he goes, does anything in Jacob's life change? It doesn't. He continues on the path that he had originally intended to do. It isn't like he has this dream and he says, you know what? I'm not going to Ur Kazdim. I'm not going to back to Mesopotamia. God's got my back. I'm going to the casino. He doesn't turn around and say, you know what? God's clearly with me. I got angels about me. I'm staying here. I'm not going to go all the way up there. Thousands of miles. I'm going to stay here. If God is protecting me, Jacob could think, there's no harm my brother Esau could do to me. But that's not what happens. Jacob continues on his way. And of course, this is the core question that we have to wrestle with. The core theological question placed right in front of us is this. And the question that it is, is do the words or does God, is religion supposed to change us or empower us? There are many who believe, of course, that the idea of religion is something that is supposed to radically change your life. It's the reason why when people have certain experiences in their life and they become religious, they forever and dramatically change the direction of their life. The people that they were before is not the people that they are now. You find, of course, in religious communities that the way that people live are dramatically different, not just in action, but in texture and attitude from how other people live. And once again, the question is, is God and the presence of God and religion to be something that is to dr dramatically change your life or empower your life? It's a question worth thinking about, of course. The truth of the matter is, most of the people who live in the world are not philosophers. Thankfully, they're not theologians. They're not academics. They're not religious thinkers. For most people who live in the world, the real question of where God is to be found, of what revelation is, 
of where coals come from, of how we make change in our life? The answer to that the Torah has, and it is a uniquely, distinctly Jewish idea. That God isn't revealed to us in great moments that forever change the direction of our life. That the real essence of where God is found is in the everydayness of the movement of our life. Abraham and Jacob didn't change the directions of where they were going. They were already on the way. And so too for you and me. We can't sit around waiting for a call to come to tell us what changes we should make in our life. The real kinds of power and impact that we have in our life are found in each step that we take, in the journey and responsibilities that are laid before our feet, and how we deal with them and discharge them, not under the good circumstances, but under the difficult and painful circumstances. The question of character and life, of God and faith, of responsibility and sanctity is not found in those powerful firecracker moments of life. Because if you're like me, it'll never happen. I have never in my life had one of those mystical, metaphysical, cold moments of my life. Maybe I'm close to it. I don't know. It's my German blood. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm too analytical. But I do deeply believe that there's a grandeur and sanctity found, that there is a call, not a loud one, but a subtle and beautiful one, and the small steps that I take every day in life. And the real power and beauty to be seen in that is to be found in something else. In my life, people, as I have seen, the people who have these remarkable, powerful religious transformations, tend to be the least flexible, the least understanding, the most judgmental. The small, soft steps of God along ours during our lifetime remind us, of course, that the greatest act of faith is never being quite sure about where we're going, but having the confidence and faith that we'll end up in a better place than we are now. Shabbat shalom, everybody.